Acts chapter 14. We're going to start throwing the scripture on the, on the screen behind me uh, as well. Uh, someone asked about that recently, and uh, I, I, I'll just be transparent with you. There, there's part of me that goes, eh, I don't know if I want to put that on the screen because I really would prefer that people bring their Bibles. <laughs> However, uh, just because you know, having that thing in your hands is nothing replaces it. Uh, however, I think it's also easier to follow the study as we go through. And so from that standpoint, you know, that's what we're going to do. So anyway, um, the Galatians, not the book of Galatians, but the Galatians. <laughs> part four of what I hope, as I mentioned earlier, uh, of a four-part series. Hopefully there's not a part five, but I'm open to that. Depends on how wordy I get. But uh, here we're looking at Paul and Barnabas wrapping up uh, their first, and, and well, it would be the only missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas would take together. Uh, we'll see in chapter 15 that they have a bit of a falling out. Uh, Barnabas takes John Mark, Paul takes Silas, and off they go. The, the work actually gets doubled through their disagreement, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But we see here that they've been expelled. <laughs> they got, they, <laughs> modern vernacular, they got, they got the boot. They got kicked out of Antioch and Pisidia uh, because they had simply shared the truth of the gospel. And uh, uh, the unbelieving Jews didn't like it. We're going to see a lot more of that this morning in chapter 14. Uh, a lot of the Gentiles didn't like it uh, <laughs> for various reasons. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas, they they were shown the door. They were escorted to the edges. And probably they were beaten. I mean, it doesn't say that here, but that was sort of a regular thing that happened. When you got kicked out of somewhere, you got <laughs> beaten with rods like we'll see in um, Philippi when we get to Acts chapter 16 and uh, second missionary journey and all that. So, But the interesting thing is, is here in the face of growing opposition, uh, chapter 13 closes with the thought that Paul and Barnabas, they're heading out. And no, they're not heading home. They're heading out. They're going to the next place because they shook the dust off their feet. Uh, said that they, they said, fine, you reject us. <laughs> We're shaking the duck, dust off our feet. And it says that they went forward with, filled with joy, that they had the joy of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they're going, you know what? There's work to do. We are not going to waste our time uh, with people that choose not to believe. We're going to go and we're going to take this precious, precious message to people who are open to receiving it. So that's the background as we begin chapter 14. In verse 1, now it happened in Iconium, and that was the next place they went, uh, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, Iconium is about 95 miles east, kind of east-southeast, uh, from Antioch and Pisidia. If you look on the map here, uh, in, in the green area, Antioch being at the sort of the left, left part and then going deeper into, uh, Galatia. Now, this is an interesting area. Remember I talked about when they went up to Antioch, uh, that, that was up in the mountains. It was very similar to here. Like if you go up in the Cascades and you go to Eastern Oregon or Eastern Washington, all along, you get into the high desert and it stays, it levels out up there and there's a huge plateau, essentially, that you can travel for hours. Well, in Asia, Europe and Asia, there's a huge area called the steppes, not S-T-E-P, but S-T-E-P-P-E. And the steppes were this huge plateau, extends down into southern Turkey and this area here is the southernmost part of the steps. So as they're traveling, they're traveling on relatively level ground now. Uh, and so they can make the trip 
the 95-mile trip fairly easily. I mean, on foot, it would take them a while. But uh, that's where they go. They head to the east, and they go further into Galatia. Now, interesting, I was looking to, there is a secular book uh, <laughs> called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. This is, it's a non-canonical book. What that means, it was not included in the canon of scripture. It is not inspired writing. But it is a book that talks about uh, Paul's activities here in Iconium. (laughs) And it's a fascinating, I read a little bit of it. But the thing that really caught my attention is it contains the only physical description of Paul on record. (laughs) And Again, the record is questionable because it's not inspired writing, but uh, there, Paul, and, and the word Paul, the name Paul means small, okay? <laughs> but that he was short, bald, bow-legged, heavy eyebrows, and protruding eyes. Uh, so uh, remember, he says in another one of his he says, you know, they say his letters are weighty, but he's contemptible in person. That's a, kind of a nice way of saying he wasn't much to look at. Uh, but uh, I just thought that was interesting. And we'll see here where uh, they get into a situation where the guys are ascribing godhood to them and and they have fitting names. Uh, so they go into the, the synagogue here and uh, in Iconium. And now Iconium is nowhere near as large as Antioch had been, but they go into the synagogue. Uh, evidently, there was one there because it, and in Jewish law, you had to have at least 10 people to have a synagogue. All right? So we know that there's at least a small number of believing Jews that come out of this whole experience. And that he says, he talks about a multitude, which just means a large group. And we don't know if that was a large group uh, like, <laughs> I don't think it was the same in Antioch where they probably filled the stadium. I, I think that's a relative term. It's a large group. I mean, uh, 50 people is a large group in a building that's built for 25. So, you know, it's a relative term. We don't know how big the group was, but there was a, a large group of people that came to believe. However, In verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. All right, so here comes the opposition. Here comes the unbelieving Jews. Now, we've talked about last week a bit why the Jews, the unbelieving Jews got worked up. And primarily, theirs was they were losing their position of prominence and power and authority and all of that. I mean, Judaism and Christianity, can't, they don't coexist well. <laughs> you can't be a Jew and a Christian. I mean, you can be a Messianic Christian, don't get me wrong. But you either follow the law of Moses or you come under the grace of God. It's, it's either or. It's not both. And we'll see that as we go through this, as we look at why Paul wrote back to the Galatians saying, it's not either or, or it's not both, it's either or. And and you need to make up your mind because one will bring a curse from God, anathema, and one will bring blessing. So uh, the unbelieving Jews, they get worked up, they stir up, first they, they stir up the, the multitude, the, the group, and then they poison their minds. So once they have gotten them loosened up, from believing the gospel, then they can plant all kinds of garbage in there. And that's essentially what's happening here. Jesus warned that this would happen. He was very clear. In Matthew 23, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And that's exactly what's happening here. Verse 3, therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. I love that. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they hit opposition. Boom. What's their answer? We're going to stick around. And I think about that and I think, you know, sometimes I'm pretty soft. 
I, I hit opposition and it's like, get me out of here. But that's not what they do. So the question becomes, why did they stay a long time? And I believe it's because they understood, folks, and we need to understand that opposition is part of standing up for Christ. I've, I've told you uh, many times before, standing up for Christ does not mean that people are automatically going to love you. It doesn't mean they're going to pat you on the head, tell you how wonderful you are. Very often it's going to be, you believe that stuff, and <laughs> you know, expletive, expletive, and people get worked up. But they understood that. That's a given. They knew that in the world you're going to have trouble. Uh, the Bible's very clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have trouble. And it was a given here. They, they knew that and they didn't let that stop them. So in the face of that opposition, they knew that these people would need to be grounded and strengthened. So the opposition comes. They've got a whole bunch of brand new converts. I mean, baby believers, babes in the Lord. And the last thing they're going to do is say, well, it got tough, so we're going to leave and leave these guys hanging. One of the things I loved, Billy Graham Crusades, uh, when they were going years ago, and, and still, like with Greg Laurie and all that, uh, is, is there is a huge effort prior to these big crusades, these big outreaches, there's a huge effort to put in place follow-up, aftercare, so that you don't get up there and you make a, a profession of faith, you identify with Christ, and then you flounder. And so what's going on here is these guys, are they understand that it's not just a one-off, that you just don't make a profession of, of, of faith in Christ and then you go about your business and go back to your old life. Uh, they're staying to disciple these people. They're sticking it out. And very often, at great personal peril, I would add. So notice it says too that, that the Lord granted signs and wonders in verse 3 to be done by their hands. Now, it wasn't them doing it, it was them being vessels through which God was performing these signs and wonders. I think that that's real clear in the text. Uh, but what is a sign? I mean, you think about it. <laughs> I was in the sign business, the sign industry for 40 some years. And, and I got a little familiar with signs and what they do. And a sign simply is something that leads or points somebody to a particular destination. Uh, my forte was billboards. I, <laughs> yeah, you didn't just put an ad up there for Denny's. You put directions on how to get to Denny's. It's X amount of exits off or, or whatever it is. So it talks about they're performing signs and they're not telling people how to get to Denny's. They're telling them how to get to Christ. And that, so the Lord was allowing these signs and wonders to be done at will. At the hands of the apostles. And, and I mean at will. These guys, <laughs> we'll see here, when the Holy Spirit charged them with it's time to demonstrate the power of God, they were able to do it. Now, not so much with so many out there today that purport to do signs and wonders. Very often, it's a sign unto itself. It's something that is part of a show. Every single time that you see signs and wonders done in God's word, it's to attest to the validity of the message. We're going to see here that Paul shifts, he, he will totally shift his approach uh, with these people. He goes to the synagogue because he knows that they can relate. They can relate to Judaism, they can relate to the word of God. And so when there are Jews around and, and believing Gentiles, we talked about the God-fearers and the proselytes and all of that. So he would go to the synagogue whenever he showed up in town. We're going to, in a minute, we're going to get to a town where he shows up and evidently there's no synagogue there. There's not even 10 Jews around. It's a small town. And he totally changes his approach, which I think is wise. So that's a sign. A wonder is something that makes you wonder. It's a very easy way to look at it. A sign points to something. A wonder is something that it causes you to wonder. It causes you to scratch your head. 
to wonder about your, yourself, about life, to wonder about God. And we'll see that. Um, verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Uh, part sided with the, the Jews, unbelieving Jews is what's implied there, and part with the apostles. Now this is the first time that the word apostles is used of this pair of guys. Now Barnabas is named as an apostle here as well. He's not one of the twelve. That he, <laughs> I want to make that clear. But an apostolic ministry in the first century was, it means one who is sent. Uh, there are people that use the term apostle loosely for missionaries. These guys, they're, they're on a missionary journey. They have been sent out by the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the last chapter. And, and now in fulfilling their ministry, they're referred to as apostles. So, uh, but the point is, is that there's opposition again. But you know, Jesus is clear. He was clear from the very start. If you are not for me, you're against me. There's no middle ground. And part of why people get hostile is because they realize that they can't sit on the fence. The fence doesn't exist. And when the gospel goes out, when the truth of God goes out, people understand it. And when that conviction comes that the Holy Spirit gets under their skin, you got one choice. You can either embrace it or you can reject it. You can't snuggle up to the truth of God. You can't just, you know, well, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll get to that. That's rejection. So it's no wonder that these guys were getting opposition. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus talking about, it says the multitude of the city was divided. Uh, Jesus, again, he gave these guys instruction on that. In Matthew ten thirty four through 36, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now, we're in a season where we say peace on earth. And that's good. That's biblical. It's peace on earth among men with whom he is well pleased. How do you get into that place? You receive Christ. You understand that it's the grace of God extended. You either receive it or you reject it, like I'm talking about. So Jesus is talking here. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. He says, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It divides. And that's what he's talking about. He says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Folks, you've got to know that as Paul and Barnabas go through this and as they go through and they share the testimony of Christ, I mean, especially with Jewish households, that these guys, I mean, there would be no small amount of hostility. People would lose their livelihoods. They would lose their position in the community. They would lose any status or stature that they had by coming to faith in Christ. Because their family would become divided. And they would be, you know, you've got dad there that goes to synagogue every Sunday and he is a strict adherent to the law. And then, you know, you got little Johnny or whatever who says, wow, I heard this message and I, I think I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that God is alive and working in my heart. And I understand that it's not by law, it's by grace. <laughs> That's friction. And, and not a little bit. We experience the same thing today, just to a different degree. It's not law and grace. It's simply the grace of God. Why do you think the church is hated? Jesus is real clear. He says, because men love darkness more than they love light, and light exposes darkness because their deeds are evil. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. Don't give me that religious mumbo jumbo. All those things that we hear. And yet these guys, if there's any, if there's one word that sums up Acts chapter 14 with Paul and Barnabas, it's the word courage. These guys are courageous. They know that they are doing what God has appointed them to do, and they are not going to be deterred by the opposition. Verse 5, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews uh, with the rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra, Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia and the, to the surrounding region. All right, so 
the first thing we see is they stick around. The opposition comes and they stick around. This is not just passive opposition. This is like if you see in the movies where there's a mob of people, they got pitchforks and they got clubs and they've got, you know, torches and all that. And they're, they're, they're coming for you. Well, they became aware that the people, along with the leaders and all these people that had been stirred up, they're coming for them. And they say, you know what? Time to go. <laughs> and then they leave. And they go now uh, to Lystra, which is about 20 miles to the southeast uh, of where they've been here. Uh, but I, I want you to understand, this is not cowardice. Uh, in verses 19 and 20, we'll look at it, where Paul, he gets stoned to death. And he gets up and he goes marching right back into the city. So it's they are courageous, but they're also wise. And there are those times where God has us stick it out. There are those times where, like they did with Antioch, rather than try to stick it out when they were given the, the left foot of fellowship, where they chose to leave. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is faithful. These guys, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit of God is faithful to let you know when it's time to, to go forth and when it's time to hold back. Well, right now, for these two guys, it's time to split. <laughs> it's time to go. So they go because this mob is coming for them. <laughs> and uh, if you see on the map here that Lystra... Uh, it, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a little bit to the southeast. Uh, and, and Lystra, again, this is a small town. It's not a big city. It, it's a Roman outpost. Maybe a population estimated 2,000 people. Uh, but they go. And uh, verse 7, and they were preaching the gospel there. So, I just think it's interesting. There's no mention of a synagogue when they go to Lystra. Uh, this is a thoroughly pagan city. Uh, there's not even ten Jews, evidently, because they don't they don't go marching into the synagogue, but they do continue to preach the gospel. They do continue to share the the hope that is found in Christ. The thing that's noteworthy to me, as I mentioned earlier, is that. Paul's normal, his usual line when he got to a city, he'd go to the synagogue and he would reason from the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, and, and demonstrate how the Christ had come and, and all of that. Here, <laughs> he starts from scratch. He doesn't have the, the opportunity to use the Bible, the Old Testament, as a launching point. These people have no idea. And very often, folks, because we live in, in a post-Christian era, and I, I think it's gone beyond that now. It's just we live in a pagan society. I mean, look around. Oh, my goodness. That's why you're shocked every day. You look at the things that are going on. It's paganism. It's absolute lack of any spiritual orientation at all, at least anything that has any semblance of truth to it. Well, that's the kind of environment that these guys are going into here. Uh, and so Paul changes his tactics. A good idea. Uh, very difficult to try to reason from the word of God with somebody that has no idea. Because it, for them, it's just another book. For them, uh, it used to be, you know, if I talk to somebody and say, well, do you believe in God? They would, well, yeah, I do, or no, I don't, or whatever. And now the the, uh, the response is often, which God? And it's just a different landscape out there. So we can, we can glean a lot from this passage. Verse 8, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. All right, so like I said, small town. Everybody in town knew this guy had never walked. <laughs> they knew he's, Luke is clear, he, he is crippled and everybody knows it. Verse 9, and the man heard Paul speaking. Uh, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And this guy leaps 
up and walks. I think it's fascinating. This guy had no point of reference. He had never heard anything about the gospel. But it says that he was listening to Paul. The Holy Spirit comes upon Paul and gives Paul a word of knowledge. He says, this guy is ready. And Paul says, he fixes his eyes on him. And and he says, get up and walk. Because he had faith to be healed. This guy had already come to pay. It's very much like with Jesus, with the man with the withered hand. He, he says, stretch out your hand. And nobody ever told the guy to stretch out his hand before. But he knew somehow that there was something different in this guy, Jesus. And this guy evidently knew that there was something different about this guy, Paul. And, and he hears, his heart is, is, is lifted up. And he comes to faith right there, listening to the message. And Paul heals him on the spot. Uh, again, the gospel's coming into this city for the very first time. These are unevangelized regions, very uh, largely. Uh, we have to assume that. We'll see that because of the actions of the people that follow here. Uh, but Paul fixes his eyes on this guy. Very similar to what Peter does in Acts chapter 3. Remember the, the man who was lame from his mother's womb there? Uh, he's sitting at the gate beautiful of the temple and, and Paul fixes, or uh, Peter fixes his eyes on this guy and he heals him. Uh, this is very similar to what's going on there. Both of them fix their gaze on the lame guy and command him to walk. Verse 11, and now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas, because these guys don't have a point of reference, they don't, they don't understand Judaism. There's no Jews there. But they do have a background. They do understand Greek and Roman the the pantheon of gods that they had, the whole mythology thing going on there. And in verse 12, in Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was uh, the chief speaker. So uh, interesting, I would think, because Zeus was the top god. He was the top dog. Hermes was was a lesser god in, in their understanding, but they call Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And if you look at what Hermes did in Greek mythology, he was the god of speech. He was the god that that gave explanation. He was the spokesperson for the gods. So they they identify Paul, this you know little bow-legged, bald-headed guy that came in, and, but he spoke eloquently. They say, "Oh, he must be Hermes." And we don't know what Barnabas looked like. I have to assume that. Uh, Barnabas was probably taller and, and they they thought, well, that must be Zeus. And so um, they give these guys, uh, they go down uh, just a totally crazy road with them. Uh, it, but their, their fanatical response, uh, there's a legend that they had in their day uh, that Zeus and Hermes had visited their region. And this is, I read about this actually in a few places. It was a popular legend that they had. Uh, and the people at that time, they had been inhospitable <laughs> and not welcomed Zeus and Hermes into their homes and, and all. And uh, as a result, the two Greek gods, they had destroyed all of the people in the city, except for one elderly couple who had been hospitable to them. So Remember, Luke is telling us that these guys are speaking in the the Lycaonian language. So Paul Paul and Barnabas, they're clueless. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand initially what's happening. These guys, they want to sit, they want to start sacrificing animals to them. And they're thinking, well, we can get it right this time. We don't want them to come and destroy us. And so all of a sudden they're on this fast track to, to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Again, no point of reference to spiritual things. Have you ever dealt with somebody that didn't have any point of reference? I have, and it's fascinating. There are times where it's like scratching my head trying to figure out 
how can I relate this to this person? Because they really don't, they just have no understanding of spiritual things. Well, in verse 13, it says, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, all right, <laughs> ding, 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 the lights start coming on with Paul and Barnabas. Here's the priest now, and he, they know that that temple, that when they saw it when they came in, he brought oxen, oxen with, and garlands to the gates and intending the, to sacrifice with the multitudes. So they're getting the whole show going. They're going to have a barbecue here. And, and Paul and Barnabas are going to be the guests of honor because they're being recognized and hailed as Greek gods. And at that point, Paul and Barnabas begin to realize just what's taking place. Verse 14, and when Paul, the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all the things that are in them. So Paul begins with this pagan group. He starts talking about creation itself. Notice it says they tear their clothes. That is, if you're a Jewish, that is a sign that you're identifying that what's coming forth is blasphemous. They tear their clothes. It's like, we don't want anything to do with this. And you can see that in the Old Testament. Uh, so so they jump in and, and Paul immediately, they start to... to seriously appeal to these guys. You're going down the wrong road. We, we, we are just like you. We are men. We're not gods. Uh, and he begins, he starts with creation itself, talking about, let me tell you about the real God. Let me tell you about the God that we've come to share with you. And he, he goes in, he talks about, he made heaven and earth and sea, all the things that are in them. He talks about creation itself. In verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. I think it's fascinating. He says, turn from these useless things. So he says, turn from useless things, this stuff you've been believing. And then he says, turn to the living God. And I don't know if that gets your attention. It sure gets mine. I think about when Jesus was at uh, Caesarea Philippi with his men. And there they are at the headwaters of the Jordan River in Matthew chapter 16, where he's there and he says, who do you say that I am? And the disciples say, well, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Uh, or he says, who do men say that I am? And then he looks at, at the guys and he says, well, who do, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter uses that famous term, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Same term that's used here. Guess where they were standing? At Caesarea Philippi. They're standing in front of the temple of Zeus. And Peter's going, you're not like these other guys. You're the living God. You're the Christ. Paul here, he says, turn from these useless things, turn from this garbage to the living God. Our God is alive. Your God has been reduced to little statues that you pack around and put on the shelf in your house. And that's what they did. Uh, most houses had a statue to Hermes that were in Greek culture uh, outside where as you entered the house, as you entered the property. So first he, he talks about God as creator, and then he shifts it up a little bit, and he talks about God as designer. As that God is, he's not only created all these things, but there is a divine design to the things that he's created. In verse 17 he says, nevertheless, he didn't leave himself without a witness, and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So he continues to appeal to the Gentile mind. Again, totally devoid of any quotes from the Old Testament like we've seen up until now because he's dealing with people where they're at. And folks, we do well to deal with people where they're at. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 
the Apostle Paul uh, would write to the church at Corinth. And he'd say, you know, and, and this is really, it's the mindset that he had here uh, with the Lycaonians, but it's also the mindset that he had with people that lived in a pagan culture uh, because he would understand that to Jews, you deal with them because you're dealing with Jews. With Gentiles, you deal with them because they're Gentiles. You don't try to mix the message. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, for, in verse 19, he says, he says, for though I am free from all men, I, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. And those who are under the law as under the law, that I may win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, he's talking now about Gentiles, and then uh, he says, as without law. And then in parentheses, he says, not being without law toward God, but under the law towards Christ. Now, he's not talking about Christian law. He's talking about, as a Christian, I don't get to just do whatever I please. <laughs> I'm constrained by the love of God. But he says, as without law, that I might win those who are without law. And that's exactly what's going on here with these people. He, he, they shockingly, they get a rude awakening. These guys are about to start sacrificing animals to them. I uh, think maybe they got their doctrine wrong here. So he's appealing to them on the basis of where they're at. That's the point. Verse 18, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So these guys, they are barely holding them back. They're going, yeah, okay, that's fine. We understand. Yeah, okay, so where's the oxen? We got to get this thing, the fire going here. <laughs> and they're saying, no, you don't, no, no, no. Because they were entrenched in what they believed. And folks, we often deal with people who are entrenched. I grew up in a false religion, and I was entrenched in it. And, and it was just similar enough to Christianity that I really thought that that was it. And it wasn't until I came under the grace of God that my eyes were opened and I began to see the error, the folly of, of, of this works-based thing that I was, you know, it was work, 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 work. You got to keep busy. You got to keep doing the right stuff. You got to, and, and it was horrible when I got outside of it and I began to look at it while I was in it, made total sense. Why? Because it appeals to the flesh. Every false religion out there appeals to the flesh. You think it didn't appeal to these guys? Hey, man, we got Zeus and Hermes here. Right on. We've got the top dog and we've got, you know, his spokesman. And, and now we're going to have a barbecue. But it wasn't true. It just flat out wasn't true. And Paul and Barnabas make no bones about it, tearing their clothes, running into the crowd and saying, hold it, hold it, hold it, stop. You got it wrong. And still, it says, as I said in verse 18, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing them. They, they, these guys are bent on doing what they're going to do. Verse 19, and then the Jews from Antioch, the, again, implied unbelieving Jews, from Antioch and Iconium came there. Now, that's a long ways away. Antioch is a couple hundred miles away. Iconium is quite a ways away. I mean, it's 20 miles. And the, the Jews from both of those towns came there and they persuaded the multitudes and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Okay, now I, I read that and I think, okay, that's weird. <laughs> Sorry. But I, it's like, what do you mean? These same people, right before this, and I'm not saying that the, the word of God is weird. I'm thinking these people are very fickle because they're, they're about to sacrifice to them as though they're deity. And then somebody comes and says, oh, no, 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 they're not. Oh, well, then let's kill them. <laughs> it's just strange. Um, so <laughs> they're... You know, one day they call you a god, and the next day they'll stone you to death. Uh, this is a popular song by Casting Crowns a few years ago. One day you're a prince, the next day you're a slave. Uh, true. 
The point in this is if I can talk you into something that's false, and it happens all the time, but if I can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. That's true. However, if the Holy Spirit is in it, it's not going to happen. The outcome is very, very different. Uh, I got talked into all kinds of things when, uh, again, as a younger man, I was on this 10-year quest for God, and uh, gosh, I studied with Jehovah's Witnesses for a year. One time I was going to seances and doing spiritistic things, and and then I studied with this other cult called the Way International out of Ohio, uh, and and I kept getting caught up in these goofy organizations and every single time because, and I really believe that God was honoring, my heart was sincere. I wanted to know God. And every time I would get delivered from it. I mean, like I said, growing up in the LDS church and it was just tough stuff. Uh, and yet when the spirit of God came flooding into my soul, when I came to Christ, when I genuinely came to Christ, and I gave my life to him, and I, I asked him to forgive me for my sins, and asked him to fill me, he did, because God is faithful. So, in verse 20, it says, however, when the disciples gathered around him, this is Paul now, they've taken him, they've drug him out, of, they've stoned him, drug him out of the city. <laughs> to be, and understand, my, my mind goes right to the visual on this. It says, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. So I think about Paul, it doesn't say, but I think about him getting up off the ground. His face might be all smudged with dirt. <laughs> Maybe it had been raining, he's muddy. We don't know. But brushing himself off and, and with just this determined, determined look on his face, he doesn't say, okay, we're done here. He marches right back into the city. Uh, And uh, folks, I I, I mentioned Popeye earlier. I just had this visual, like you see on the screen. Like, remember in the cartoons where there'd be like this big tussle going and, and it's like this cloud and an arm sticks out here and then a leg out here and all of that. And then somebody gets thrown out and they kind of land on the ground. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I just was picturing like Popeye in the cartoons. He, he would just get, all right, and then he'd you know, do his thing and get back and march right back in. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. And, and yeah, I, I, just a, a bit comical on this. However, he's serious. You mean you're to beat me up and throw rocks at me and leave me for dead? And he gets up. And he goes back into the city. Again, I, I don't think that that was because one of the rocks had hit a spot that caused him to be dazed and confused beyond help. I think it's because he was courageous. He understood that God had called him to this. He understood that it was going to be tough. He understood that not everybody was going to like him. He understood that there was work to do, especially with these precious people that had come to Christ. And he gets up undeterred and goes right back into the city. Now, (laughs) the next day, he and Barnabas took off and went to the next town. Things got a little violent there. It says in the next day they departed uh, and they went to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples... They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now, Derby, again, we're still traveling east here. Derby is about 80 miles. If you look on the map here, it's about 80 miles east of Lystra. Um, yeah, following the blue line on the map, uh, this town, Derby, would be, it's, it's, very, it's on the very eastern edge of Galatia, the region of Galatia. So, but I want you to notice something. I want you to look to the right of Derby, and you'll see Tarsus. That's the next town over that, that you see there. It's not where the line goes because it tur- the line turns around and goes the other direction. This is the end of the line for these guys on their first missionary journey. 
And, and like they had in every other town, they make more disciples. It doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us there was a synagogue or not a synagogue. It just tells us that they made more disciples. We have to trust that if there wasn't a synagogue, they appealed to them as pagans, as those who were not under law. If there was, then they would appeal to them from the Old Testament scriptures, one or the other. What I think is remarkable about this is Tarsus is Paul's hometown. He could have gotten to the end of the line and said, you know what? Come on, Barney, let's go. Let's go back to Tarsus. Let's go check this thing out. Let's go, you know, I, I think we're done here. We, there's no other cities for 100 miles or whatever it was. But he doesn't do that. They turn around. It says in verse 21, they've returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. They went back because of their love for the people. They chose the hard route. Do you know how many hundreds of miles they added to their journey back to Antioch and Syria by doing this? They're going the opposite direction of home. But they also knew that the work wasn't done. They had to do the follow-up. Again, this is the beginning of the church. This is the start. This is the genesis of Christianity here. They're planting churches along the way as they go along. And they understand that, that, that there, there are perilous things going on. There is a group of people, they took it upon themselves to chase them down from Antioch and Pisidia to go all the way across so that they could stir the people up and poison their minds against them. And so they know that there, there are pressures against the church. And they know that they have these young converts there uh, that are going to be going through a lot of trouble. That's why Luke says that they strengthen the souls of the disciples in verse 22, and they exhort them. And ex- exhortation is a strong encouragement. Continue in the faith. Keep the faith. Keep going. You know, very often when, when we're going through very difficult things in our lives, Sometimes, and I know as a pastor, sometimes the best thing I can do is just exhort somebody, hang in there. It won't always be like this. I have said that so many times over the years, folks. Please, please keep in mind, it won't always feel like this. It won't always be this tough. So they they go back because they love these people. And the other thing about that is how could Paul have exhorted the people to continue if he himself had quit, they're leading by example. He says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's one of the most accurate scriptures in all of God's word. Uh, you know, there was a thing, and I understand the campus crusade thing years ago. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does. But you've got to understand, that is probably, most likely, not going to look like your plan for your life. (laughs) Serious. We go through stuff, don't we? We go through, and tribulation is the fancy Bible word for trouble. He says, you know, you're going to go through a lot of trouble between now and when you enter the kingdom of God, when you actually get there, when you get home. It's tough out there. I look around at our culture and I see a worsening culture. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of brains to see it. I see churches thinning out. I see the world gaining a foothold. And I just have to constantly come back and remember, God, this is your work. These are your people. Lord, it's your church. And yeah, Uh, She's limping along, but as I mentioned before, I've read the end of the book, and guess who wins? Take courage. It's troublesome for now. Failing health, economics, uh, relationships that are destroyed or that are seriously impaired because of your testimony of Christ. A lot of trouble. Paul says, you know what? That's a given. I'm going to do what God set before me to do. And again, courage. 
one of the most wonderful aspects of this. Verse 23, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed and, uh, with fasting, they commanded, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul's first, Paul and Barnabas in this first missionary journey, as they're wrapping it up now, they're headed back. They're taking, again, they're taking the circuitous route back because they want to make sure to go back and visit these churches where they had been. And, and yeah, in the modern church, I'll wait. I wait quite a while before I raise up an elder because I want to, you know, I want to be able to watch that person's life. I want to see what they're made of. And I want to make sure that there's, you know, spiritual integrity and that, that they're, that stuff that Paul talks with Timothy about, managing their household well and all of that. That's fine. I mean, it's not perfection, but it is. There's just a certain qualification that a man exhibits as God is raising him up. It's not something he gets out and tries. You don't take an elding class. But here, you've got to realize, elders in the early church, you had a bullseye on your back. <laughs> you were identified. Oh, he's the leader? Get him. He's, oh, where are the rocks? Look what's happening to these guys. We have, there's, we have to assume there's a lot that didn't get recorded because of the, the condition that this culture was in as the truth of the gospel came crashing in. So they, they go back and they don't raise up elders like we do in our day. I mean, it only been, you've been a Christian for two weeks? <laughs> Great, you want to be an elder? Yeah, we don't do that. But remember, they head back. As they're heading back, they're appointing elders. Why? Because they're seeing those who had sort of risen uh, in, in the ranks, not because there's a hierarchy, but they're seeing that there are certain ones who have been faithful. They're seeing that there are ones who have been carrying out the work, as I mentioned, just at very often at great personal expense. And so as they go back to these churches, they identify those who God is raising up as leaders. That's my point. And in, in a church that's literally months old, that's what you got to do. They can't be at every church. So uh, they appoint elders in every church and, uh, and they prayed, they fasted, commended to them, them to the Lord uh, in the Lord uh, whom they had believed. So uh, verse 24, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now remember Pamphylia, that's the coastal region where we started. Uh, where they first landed when they came over from Cyprus. <laughs> and uh, when they, verse 25, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Now, Italia, that's interesting because they go west again. Home is east. But I just picture, and it doesn't tell us, so I, I picture in my mind, you know, Paul and Barnabas having a conversation. You know, Italia is not very far. Come on, let's do one more city. Let's, let's take the, the gospel. Let's, I mean, let's not waste this trip. Let's make sure that we get the word out to as many people as we possibly can before we head back. Uh, and, and so they do. They go to Italia, which is the other direction. And then they get on the boat. And from there, verse 26, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. All done. For now. They'd be headed back out. And we'll look at that when we get to it. But they were faithful to complete the work that had been set before them. Folks, it's not about how hard you work. It's not about how much opposition you face. It's not about making sure that you have dotted every I and crossed every T. We have our own metrics that we use to measure those things. And, and I'm not saying they're unimportant. But the most important thing is have you faithfully carried out or are you faithfully carrying out that which God has set before you to do? That's what God lo looks at. That's the metric that he uses. It's called faithfulness. 
And if God has called you to be a housewife and a faithful mom and to, to do the things he's, great. Be faithful in that. If he's called you to pastor a church, be faithful in that. And, and, and be faithful to just get in and serve. If he's called you to just look around and see what needs to be done, be faithful in that. You're going to, I'll tell you, if you're being faithful in the ministry you've got, you're going to have trouble. Straight up. It's, it's not all rose petals, guys. But it's so worth it. These guys get to the end of the line. I, I think about what kind of conversations would they have had on the boat on the way back? Do you remember when they threw all those rocks at you, Paul, and you just jumped up and ran back into the city? Do you remember when they kicked us out of Antioch after we filled the stadium and the Holy Spirit fell and we saw these huge amounts of people get saved? Do you remember? Oh, how about the time when? And I mean, you can fill in the blank. You gotta know these guys had conversations and they're not recorded for us. And so I'm always careful with that. But you gotta know that they did. And how excited would they be? You know, Paul probably still had knots on his head from the rocks. <laughs> Who knows? But how excited would they be? And he, maybe he's still got, his eyes are still running goo because of the, uh, <laughs> the malaria that he got along the way. We don't know all those in, intricate details. But these are, as I mentioned before, these are real people. These are real events. And you got to know that they live their lives between the lines that we read here. And I'll bet they were excited. They get all done with this journey. They head back. They go to Antioch. And the church, I would imagine, they had one heck of a potluck when they got back. Who knows? But they completed the work. They were faithful. As a side note, I think that it was very, very important to Paul. You look at his actions all through this. Where he says, uh, I'm not stopping. And he gets up and he jumps back in. Well, they're opposing us. Well, let's stay a long time then. <laughs> you know, you look at his, his actions. Finishing that which God had set before him to do was so important. I believe that that's part of why he got pretty worked up about John Mark. And why we see in chapter 15, he and Barnabas have a falling, uh, <laughs> they, uh, uh, their relationship fell apart for a period of time at least. And because and, and, it's so important to Paul that the work be first and, and their comforts came after that. So, and, and again, my dad, my dad was born, I, I was a very, <laughs> I was a midlife child for him. It, were he alive, he'd be like 118 or 117 right now. You know, he, he was an old guy when I was born. But, you know, he, he was very fond of sayings, you finish what you start. <laughs> you know, and, and he would, he drilled that, that ethic into me, uh, that is, I see absent in a lot of cases today, but, uh, and, and Paul, I, I think he was probably very strong. You finish what you start. You're gonna go with us, John Mark, you better finish it. If you're not gonna finish it, I don't have any use for you. And that's essentially how his attitude was. So anyway, uh, verse 27, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The door is open without which you and I would have no hope. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they probably stayed in Antioch for another one to two years. Uh, before they would go back out and then and they would sort of retrace their steps where they finished off. They would at this point go through Tarsus and go on up through Lystra and Iconium and Derby and all of that and then go across on land. They wouldn't take the boat on their second missionary journey going out. They would take the boat coming back. But uh, the first one, they took the boat going out and then they took the boat coming back. Second journey, they went a lot further. We'll get into that. But the point is that they remained in Antioch uh, and just shored up the church there for a couple of years. So as we wrap up, just some reminders. Uh, first is the apostles expected 
opposition. Do you expect opposition? Or do you get your feelings hurt? Go find somebody else to talk to. They expected opposition and their, and their choice was to stay longer and disciple uh, the new Christians that were in their midst because they had, there was danger there. So expect opposition, that's my point. Connected to that, be courageous. Are you courageous in your ministry? Whatever that ministry is. Again, whether it's being a housewife and a mom or a dad or pastoring a church or whatever in between, being faithful on the job. Be courageous in your approach to the things of God. The second thing is what I call active listening. Folks, we are to be all things to all people. So do you actively listen to others as you share the Lord with them? (laughs) Or are you that man that or that woman who's really not listening? Maybe you're acting like you're listening and and you're just waiting until they finish that sentence so you can tell them the really important stuff. I want to encourage you, listen. Listen to people. Listen to what they have to say. Very often I've found, and we used to do these outreaches in a church we were in in California, and we would have an outreach to the whole community, have the whole community show up for a potluck. And, and part of the instruction that we would give is just ask some questions. People want to tell their story. They want to be heard. And how can they be heard if you're not listening? And then, and then, be all things to all people. Reach them where they're at. Because if not, if you try to talk and, and it's a, somebody has, they don't have any concept of spiritual things or whatever, you might as well be going, la, 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 la. Because they're not going to understand where you're coming from. But if you're in a place where you're hearing them, you're listening to them, you're seeing how they orient, how they roll, you're going to be a lot more effective in sharing the Lord with them. Last thing here is, is a question. How's your endurance level doing? <laughs> now, I freely confess, I'm a lot softer than these guys. If somebody's going to throw a bunch of rocks and hit me in the head with them and leave me for dead, I'm probably not brushing myself off and going back into the city. I'm just being honest. But these guys endured. They got kicked out of Antioch. If you'd have been kicked out of town, If you've been faced with a murderous crowd, they're coming for you and they've got clubs and pitchforks. I don't know if they had pitchforks, but if you're stoned or beaten so badly that you're left for dead, (laughs) would you quit? Or would you marvel at the doors that God has opened? That's what you see here with these guys. And I know that sounds far-fetched. I know that sounds beyond our ability because guys left to ourselves, we don't have that kind of courage. We don't have that capacity. We've been talking here in the book of Acts where he talks about the gift of boldness to boldly go where no one has gone before. I've heard that before. No, but seriously, to boldly approach the things of God, to, to say, you know what, Lord, they might not like me, but I want to see him in heaven. So I'm going for it anyway. It doesn't mean that you, you know, overpower people, put them in a half Nelson and tell them you better come to Christ or else. But it does mean that you get past your own fear of rejection. We, we do that. It does mean that you get past your own emotional response. And you say, Lord, I just want to be faithful with the message. I want to be a faithful messenger for you. I want to be able to fulfill this thing that you've put before me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget about myself. And I'm going to magnify Christ in whatever the situation is. One of my life verses is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. And we'll wrap with this. The writer there says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you can receive what was promised. I think about Paul in 2 Timothy at the end of the line, and he knew he was on death row. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Terrible place. And he's writing back to Timothy. He says, you know what? I, I have run the race. I've finished the course. I've 
fulfilled that for which Christ laid hold of me to fulfill. By the way, it's cold, bring a cloak. (laughs) I relate to that. The point is, he gets to the end of the line and he's not ashamed. He says, you know what? I've done everything that God told me to do. And we know he went through it. So be encouraged. Very often, my prayer is, Lord, I need endurance. I want to do your will. And I want to receive that crown of life that I will take and throw back at the feet of Jesus because it's only through his work, his completed work, that I have any way to stand. Let's pray. Father, just so thankful for your grace and thankful, Lord, that uh, we could come and, and just open our hearts, open our minds to your word and allow you by your Holy Spirit to pour into us. Lord, your word declares that, you, that it doesn't go out and, and return void. I know most, if not all, the people here in this room and those uh, watching online, I trust, uh, belong to you. And so let your word take root in our hearts. Lord, encourage us. Uh, give us endurance. Help us to, to not shrink away from those tough situations or those difficult people. Help us to embrace the work of the gospel, the work of redemption that you want to use us to accomplish uh, through us in the lives of others. Lord, I confess my own weakness in some of those areas. Pray that you would strengthen me. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, that it would be for your glory, for your kingdom, and and for souls to be saved and for lives to be touched in the name of Jesus. We commit ourselves afresh toward that end, Father. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.